1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Across the UK, online,
0: on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the independent republic of Mike
2: Graham on Talk Radio. So here we are again Welcome to the independent republic of Mike Graham As the world and its family wants to move on Out of the coronavirus pandemic And the lockdown that has kept everyone occupied For the best part of the last two months We are still not quite capable of it in this country While the Italians sip espresso In their many splendid piazzas While the Spanish prepare to go back to the beaches While America reopens its doors And the French go back to school We are still obsessed Correction, our media is still obsessed With one story and one story only Last night, Emily Maitlis who has paid the princely sum of around about £300,000 by us via the BBC licence fee, uh, launched a stinging and totally partisan attack on the government's chief advisor at the start of Newsnight, making out that she alone knew precisely what the rules were knowing full well uh, that he broke those rules, knowing everything about the story that people are still incredibly mixed up about, right? Uh, Now, I'm going to tell you this. She says that the polls have now been commissioned, which show the Prime Minister's popularity is supposedly plummeting. Problem is, of course, that polls are easily manipulated to get you the result that you want. And in the case of two of the newspapers, the sample size is so tiny as to be completely and utterly insignificant. I, for one, will not be joining in the ludicrous spectacle of chasing an imaginary quarry Just to make a point, here at Talk Radio, we are rather bigger than that, and we are getting bigger every single day as a result. You know what to do. We are the home of common sense. Therefore, uh, we want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. Coming up instead, uh, we shall be discussing far more important matters, like the local lockdowns proposed by Matt Hancock yesterday, like the new drug uh, Remdesivir, which could be a revolutionary treatment for the COVID-19 virus, and like new guidelines, which will make it easier for two families to meet up for a barbecue. All far more important stories, than the hounding of one man who got Brexit done, I think you will find. 0344 499 1000 is the number. LaDonna Harvey will join us later with all the news from the US of A, uh, where the police in Minneapolis are in big trouble uh, for once again shooting dead, or killing rather, uh, an innocent black man uh, who appears uh, to have just been put to death for no apparent reason. And for homeschooling, the slot today, uh, we are joined by none other than Neil Oliver, archaeologist, historian, uh, and that coast guy. He's going to be teaching us a little, bi- a little bit about our great coastline in this country you'll listen to me mike graham on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio mid-morning with mike
3: graham talk radio
2: Welcome back to uh, the greatest radio station in the land. We are growing uh, every single day. Welcome to all of you new listeners and thank you very much for joining in uh, the revolution here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. There is one name uh, that I do not particularly want to hear this morning and that is Dominic Cummings. We saw last night uh, how Robert Peston was magnificently dealt with by Matt Hancock, completely and utterly brushed off as he tried to list list once more one more of his ridiculous questions. And the media in this country really are obsessed and obsessive Thing about this one man uh, without any good, uh, without any care about what real people in this country actually care about. What real people care about in this country uh, is when we're going to be able to send our children back to school, when we're going to be able to get on a plane once more and fly somewhere on holiday, when we're going to be able to return to some kind of normality. And it looks to me as though quite a lot of that is going to be happening quite soon. Certainly by the beginning of June and by the middle of June, I'm suspecting uh, that we will all be having a much better time uh, than we are currently having at the moment. Let's talk to Claire Coutinho, uh, who is a Conservative MEP for East Surrey. Claire, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. I'm sorry to bang on about the old journalism business, but it's the business I've been in for many decades, and I've never been quite so ashamed uh, as I am today of some of my fellow colleagues um, who really don't do any good service for the public of this country. And one of the reasons why we, as a radio station, are doing so well is because we do. Well, I mean,
1: I I think... One of the things that we've seen over the last couple of days is then there has been quite a lot of misreporting, yeah. um, and obviously with the current situation, there are people who are very angry and very upset, which I completely understand. But you know, I do think there is a question about some of the facts that were put out into the public domain, which have turned out not to be true. Well,
2: I would question that as well. I mean, there might be some people who are angry. You know, I myself did not see my own family uh, for about mm. seven to eight weeks. Okay, I'm not angry with Dominic Cummings as a result of that. You know, and it's, it's something that I did. It's something. That i accepted that i did and it's something that is now passed and i'm now able to see them again so i don't believe you know whenever i hear mps saying oh i've got thousands of emails i'm never sure that they have got thousands of emails to be honest
1: well, I mean, I think it's important to say that people have also emailed in on the other side of things and that quite a lot of people do understand at this point about family safety and that he was looking after his child. And he was doing the, be- the best he could in very, very difficult circumstances. Um, and, you know, like like you, I've not seen my family, some of whom are, are well and you know, all of us have made sacrifices. But, I think there is a level of human understanding about the position that he was in and the steps that he took Mm. as well.
2: Yes, exactly right. I mean, let me ask you, how many emails have you had from people who are incandescent with rage about this?
1: So I have had um, quite a lot of emails um, from people. I think one of the things that stands out to me in those emails is a huge amount of the suffering that those people have gone through. So either they haven't seen grandchildren, for example, or they haven't seen sick family members. Right. Um, and I think again, this does come back to that point of misreporting because actually he didn't see his parents and he didn't go to a funeral um, from someone that had passed yeah. away close to him and he didn't go with his child into the hospital like many of the people have, have, have also suffered. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think I think one of the things that has come up for me is how difficult the lockdown has been for many people in lots of different ways. And I think a lot of that upset is is coming out.
2: Yes, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But let's look as well at some of the things that we should be talking about. For example, front pages this morning talking about um, the hope for a new drug, which might be something that will help treating uh, the actual coronavirus, remdesivir. I reported on this a few weeks ago because I think there was a study done in America uh, that this remdesivir does seem to make people recover from COVID-19 symptoms much quicker if they end up in hospital. Also, uh, the local lockdowns that Matt Hancock kind of mentioned yesterday were the a conversation, we'll be talking about all of those things today. Because I really think that in the end, you know, the Dominic Cummings story is now a dead duck. I'm sorry. I mean, we've we've had the conversation. He's explained what he did. The, 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 gov- the government have said what they think. Boris Johnson has said what he wants to say. There really doesn't seem to be any more legs in it, as we used to say in the newsroom.
1: Well I think a lot of people want to see us you know talk about economic recovery now talk about how we are moving out of lockdown. Right. So I think there's some really exciting things that like you mentioned the new drug which, which you know cuts down recovery by about 4 days uh, which is very good news. Um we're going to hear more I believe from the health secretary on test track and trace later and you mentioned this point about local lockdowns which could be as more as around particular hospitals or schools or businesses, which means that all the people around that area will have much greater freedom. So I think all of these things are actually really good news, and a lot of people want us to be talking about those things, which are going to have a much more direct effect on their lives than, you know, frankly, this this other story.
2: Well, exactly right. And I mean, as far as the, uh, the, the sort of the landscape looks from your point of view, I see in about a month's time, uh, we'll be doing a lot more things that we used to do. Um, and the world will seem a bit more normal, don't you think?
1: Yes, I hope so. I hope we can start getting back to normal. Um, I think, you know, some of these things are quite exciting. We've got people going back to school. We've got outdoor markets and car showrooms opening. We've got high street shops opening. Um, sorting events, which will then be able to be broadcast. So hopefully that will start to get us back on the road to normality.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as the government is concerned, I mean, you I don't know whether you, you you speak on a daily basis to members of the Cabinet, but you know, what is their mood at the moment? Because I could see with Matt Hancock yesterday, there was a bit of frustration creeping in. I've always been astonished at how um, patient the ministers are at these press briefings, given some of the stuff that gets thrown at them. But, but I mean, how is the mood? At the time? I mean, we were told yesterday there was going to be a massive kind of um, revolt after the uh, junior Scotland minister resigned, but then nobody else did.
1: Well, I mean, I can't speak for the mood of the cabinet, but I do think that the, the strong view of lots of people is that we've got a very serious job on our hands, um, at which they, they want to sort of get on with focusing on. And things like the economic recovery will be really important. Things like the health response as we move into the next phases will be really important. And I know a lot of work is being done um, and we'll be hearing more about that in the next few weeks.
2: Right. And as far as the, um, uh, you know, the recess is concerned, obviously, a lot of people were quite surprised that uh, that you didn't continue to go in and out of Parliament. What's happening about everyone coming back to Parliament? Because that seemed a bit unclear to me at the close of play um, last week. Is it going to be a return to, to normal parliamentary sort of um, numbers or what? So
1: I, I don't think it's going to be a return to Parliament, as we know uh, it, from before so obviously there's still going to be a high amount of social distancing um i think staff will still remain working from home so it will just be members yeah. who are in the house and um, they won't be quite like before uh, but we know that we're coming back which i think is a good thing and you know even though it's recess now i would uh, say that actually lots of people are still doing lots of work all of the select committees are still going ahead lots of people are doing lots of work in their constituencies as well um, but it's right i think that we come back and, and get on with legislation as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. Because there are, uh, you know, the, the business of parliamentary business must still go on, doesn't it?
1: Well, exactly. And particularly at this very difficult moment. There's lots of things to scrutinise, lots of things that we'll need to bring forward. So I think it's right that we're going back to do that job.
2: Okay, great stuff. Claire, thank you very much indeed. Claire Coutinho, Conservative MP for East Surrey there, uh, talking about how important it is that we do uh, move on uh, from this story, which I don't particularly want to talk about anymore, because to be honest, it's done. It's dusted. You know, the government has said that Dominic Cummings is staying. Dominic Cummings has said uh, it's not up to him to decide whether he's staying or not. Um, You know, let's just move on, shall we? You know, I don't know why uh, anyone in uh, the press gallery would need to continue to ask a question about it. Unless, of course, they've got some kind of secret agenda, which is not terribly secret. Could it be uh, that the Three Stooges do have a secret agenda? Could it be uh, that they're just trying to destabilise Boris Johnson? Could it be even this? that they're trying to destabilise Brexit. Surely that couldn't be true, could it? This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, to Tej Parrick uh, He's the Chief Economist at Institute of Directors, because Rishi Sunak, we expect this week to be uh, releasing a few more details about an end um, to the self-employment and furloughing scheme. So let's find out uh, from Tej what's going on. A uh, very good morning to you, Tej hi there good morning thanks very much for joining us i mean there's a bit of confusion it seems over the furlough scheme and exactly where it's going isn't there because we know it's been extended to september but we're not sure quite what that means in terms of how much percentage wise the furlough is going to go down to from 80 percent if anything Um, and we don't know which um, sectors perhaps are going to be lifted from it sooner rather than later
4: that's right. Uh, the government's plans are that from the summer, uh, the scheme will start to be wound down. Right. So the amount the amount that businesses will have to contribute uh, towards the furlough amount would increase. Um, businesses are also allowed to bring workers back on a part time basis from right. the summer. Right. So I think there are still questions around how much they'd be asking businesses to contribute.
2: Do you think they're still trying to work that out or do you think they just haven't told us yet?
4: I think it's a very difficult one to work out because um as you uh, implied it's not one size fits all mm. obviously if you are an SME then the amount that you can shoulder in terms of costs will be different to a larger firm and also um, some sectors have been worse hit than others as well.
2: Yes, of course. And hospitality, for example, one of the areas which we're really uh, looking at being one of the last businesses that's going to be allowed to sort of reopen, it would seem to me. Um, and if it does reopen, it's going to be a very different beast than it was before the lockdown, I suppose. Um, because friends of mine who, who run hospitality businesses are saying, you know, we're not really sure what to do because we've still got loads of people on the payroll um, and we don't know if we'll ever need them again.
4: Yeah, that that means there could be a case that the furlough scheme might have to be operated on a sector by sector basis, given uh, the difficulties for certain industries like the hospitality sector. And it's also also worth noting noting that a lot of businesses will struggle to operate under social distancing yeah. and, and won't be able to reach anywhere near the types of uh, production levels they were at uh, before the crisis.
2: Yes. Well. I spoke to somebody the other day, funnily enough, who was a um, a tailor, effectively, or but somebody who goes into uh, individual shops and actually works in dressing rooms and, and, and changes people, you know, and sort of has to work very closely with people. She basically said to me that she's sort of fallen through the cracks here on the self-employment front because she doesn't see a time when she's going to ever be able to go back to work because you can't really do what she does, which is sort of marking up clothes, without being right next to someone
4: yes it is particularly challenging and also i think there has been some confusion around the guidance so the government have gone for a principles-based approach that allows businesses to return to social distancing Mm. on on however they see best fit but i think some businesses are obviously very unique and and you know have different operating models and there'd probably be a bit looking for a bit more clarity on, on what the best way is for them to operate right. going
2: forward. And what's been your view, Ted, generally on the furloughing scheme? Because there seems to be a sort of um, a diversion of views, if you like. Some who believe it's a kind of superannuated unemployment um, s- system. Secondly, it's being used by some unscrupulous firms to kind of keep people on um, longer than they would have otherwise kept them on. And they're just going to get rid of them maybe in, uh, in September or October. Is it something that, that you think was a good idea?
4: Well, for many of our members who are small and medium sized enterprises, it has been incredibly supportive for them. we yeah. know across the entire economy it has helped keep unemployment um, you know, down yeah. and and haven't an increased to the to the rates and levels we've seen elsewhere, particularly looking at America. I think the big question is how we move forward with it. It's yeah. clear that it's slowly uh, might be reduced as businesses go back into operation. And it may be the case that other forms of support come in to kind of try and reduce, uh, if you like, the, the, the burden it puts on the government in terms of payments going forward.
2: Mm, exactly right. Because, of course, an awful lot of the companies who are furloughing their employers, employees rather, won't be able to bring them back, will they? So, So, I mean, would you expect there to be a big problem come the autumn?
4: Yes, I think the challenge is is as you start to reopen, you're gonna to have to, you know, take workers off furlough, you're gonna to have to reopen parts of your business and that imposes a cost. But if you don't have the revenues to match because consumer confidence is low and not many people are out on the high street, then you obviously have another cash flow problem. Mm. And so it may, you know, a lot of businesses will be forced into some very difficult decisions down the line about what they do with, with their workforce.
2: Yes. And as far as your members are concerned that you mentioned earlier, um, are they largely confident that, that things can return to normal at some point or uh, are they slightly sort of uh, fit in, living in fear and foreboding? I
4: think it is very difficult to have any clarity on what's going to happen for the rest of the year. I think getting confidence on the public health plan is is the most important thing. I think if businesses expect there to be another spike in cases and a return to lockdown, then that will all but kind of ruin any plans for investment and hiring down the line. So I think businesses are looking closely at what the kind of health dynamics are, as well as, kind of the economic dynamic
2: yes quite and and again it's almost impossible to make those kinds of predictions, although at the moment it seems to to me to all the for all the medical people that I talk to that it does appear to be on the wane, certainly in london uh and certainly uh you know spreading north, it seems there are fewer and fewer cases are occurring now,
4: yeah, I think businesses have seen uh, some positive news in in the last few weeks and I think um then I think the next stage for them is getting a better understanding of how what their new business really looks like in, in, in a world of social distancing. And I think there will be a couple of weeks at least of transition for businesses to kind of refit their workspaces in order to ensure that they are safe. Mm for workers to come back because i think the other aspect is is it's one thing reopening your office it's the next actually giving the workers the confidence to get there particularly on public transport well and that then, is another problem isn't yeah. it because
2: it's i mean we know london well obviously but not every place has got such good public transport mix as london has um yeah. and many people will probably feel a little bit dubious about using certainly the tube in london
4: yeah I think in fact that's one of the biggest concerns we're 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 like gonna say so we know a lot of our members have reopened their workspaces, but um it's very difficult to encourage workers who rely on the bus system or the underground system to 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 take those modes of transport, given you know the, the potential fears around um infection there so I think uh, that, that that will probably limit our ability to to get back to work as, as quickly as we, we had hoped
2: right and and just on a sort of macro level as far as the economy goes are you confident that that the government is borrowing all this money uh in such a way that uh, it can be handled and it won't be i mean i'm one of those people that thinks that you know if the government wants it to be then it can make it be if you like you know it doesn't have to be um, a disaster economically because the government basically can do with the debt what it wants
4: well, I, I think um, as long as the ability to kind of pay the debt interest that the government is building up over this time, you know, is less than the rate of economic growth, then then we're safe because it means you can cover the payments. Mm. Uh So I think, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, I actually think in the next couple of months going forward, there may be a stronger case to actually try and stimulate the economy yes. uh, through some measures because once you can encourage businesses to start investing again consumers start spending then hopefully that means you know tax revenues will naturally pick up because the economy is growing and therefore we can kind of start to eat into into the debt that we have built
2: up over the crisis so you can effectively spend your way back to to health economically
4: yeah, I, I think it would be, uh, you know, wrong to kind of try and impose a high level of tax upon businesses because then that would stymie their growth even more. Yeah. And don't forget, don't forget, a lot of businesses will be paying back loans that they have incurred over the course of the crisis. Mm. They'll be paying back any tax deferrals they've made. So I think it's absolutely important that in the coming six. 12 months, you actually stimulate those businesses rather than drag them down even more. And that will help us to pay back um, those debts even quicker.
2: Yes, I think that's a very good point. Ted. thank you very much indeed. Ted Parrick the Chief Economist at the Institute for Directors. Um, very much echoing what I've been saying over the course of the last few weeks because I believe very firmly that uh, rather like uh, some companies that were not allowed to go bankrupt back in the 80s and 90s when they were struggling uh, with heavy debt problems because the banks uh, they owed so much money to the banks The banks preferred to keep them going. So just kept lending the money until they recovered. And that worked well. Uh, Similarly here, if the companies uh, that need to keep going are kept going and stimulated and the economy is stimulated in a similar way, I really don't see why we need to go through some horrendous, ghastly recession. When, in fact, as uh, Ted's just said there, uh, we could stimulate the economy back to life and bring it back to life and actually create growth that way. That's why I always say uh, when I have conversations with Peter Hitchens and others who say that the economy has been trashed, I don't believe it has been trashed, I don't believe that it needs to be trashed and I don't believe um, that trashing it is the way forward and I'm sure the government doesn't think that either. Uh, loads more to come in the next hour, we're going to talk to Dr. Carol Sikora uh, he's going to be here to tell us about these mini lockdowns which the government plans to do uh, small, regionally based possibly even just locking down a housing estate if they find that there are some cases there that need to be sorted out. I've got a great tweet here from Helen uh, which pretty much says sums up the whole situation regarding uh, Dominic Cummings but also um, the rules and the regulations that have been set aside. Helen says this, rules are for the guidance of the wise and the blind obedience of idiots. There were exceptions written into the lockdown rules for that very reason. I think that pretty much sums up precisely where we are. You know, the guidance was used by people who were intelligent enough to understand what the guidance was meant to do. That's the point. You cannot give a situation uh, and, and guidance for every single situation that you're gonna come across in life. It's just not that simple. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome,
1: like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. Work.
2: Coming up as well, we're going to talk to our favourite professor, Professor Carol Sakura. Uh, we're going to ask him about this local lockdown idea that Matt Hancock announced yesterday. He's going to give more details out later on today. But effectively, what they're going to do with this whole track and trace scenario is they're going to try and make sure that any local outbreak of coronavirus is dealt with locally. Seems to make sense to me. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with
3: Mike Graham. Talk radio.
2: Now don't forget we are live streaming on YouTube where you can see our delightful new studios just in case you hadn't noticed that we've got delightful new studios you can tell by looking at them uh, that they are indeed delightful and in fact my shirt today is almost the exact same color as the River Thames which is unusual because normally the River Thames is a sort of a murky brown colour. Today it's very blue because the sky is very blue and it looks absolutely beautiful. Professor Carol Sakura is with us. Professor, very good morning, or good afternoon to you, I should say. Good afternoon, Mike. How the devil are you? very well. Now but you not mentioning
3: DC. We agreed that before. Yes,
2: yes, very much so. I mean, you and I uh similarly share I think an optimistic view of the world in general. I I follow yeah. you on Twitter and your tweets are always positive. They're always encouraging. They're always kind of, you know, making us feel good about ourselves and about this horrible virus. what uh what are what are you thinking about this local lockdown scenario?
0: Well, I'd like to see it explained how it would work. It's it sounds a good idea. Forget the track and trace. We don't have that level of sophistication. Public Health England, who've been failed us completely over the last eight weeks on PPE, on tracing, on on testing, all these things... I mean, it's like a brewery and a party in a brewery. They they don't seem to be able to get it together. Mm. This would require a level of sophistication and compliance that could only be done in Singapore or Korea. Somewhere like that, you could do it. Yes, because if
2: you were going to shut down like a housing estate, you'd effectively have to put police there, wouldn't you, to stop people? I know from from talking to friends of mine, a lot of international journalists that work all over the world, um, one of their friends was was quarantined back in China. She had come back from Singapore, went to, 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 to go through the airport, they quarantined her in her own flat in China, in Beijing, but they put a camera outside the front door. And if anything, and, and if she ever went out the front door, you know, some very burly security men would arrive and tell her to get back inside it. So we, we can't really do that kind of thing.
0: No, and where's the boundary? So say you want to uh, isolate Nottingham. OK, let's take Nottingham. We're going to isolate Nottingham. We're not letting anyone in and out. Is that the plan? Yeah. Stop the trains going, stop... Buses going there and so on. It's, it's, it's not feasible. No other countries tried to do this mm. other than Korea and Singapore, and they're highly dis- and China to a certain extent highly disciplined organisation, Very good IT. We just don't have that
5: here.
2: No. We,
0: don't, we haven't heard about the experiment in the Isle of Wight. Gone very quiet. It has
2: gone very quiet. You know, we spoke to yeah. Bob Seeley, who's the MP down there, who said that it had yeah. been quite good in terms of people's take up. But the That's story, right. the story I saw the other day was, was that people were picking. Picking it up on the mainland as well, Um, you know, (laughs) because the Isle of Wight is not very far away from from Britain. Um, And and, and that was kind of confusing the issue in a way, because obviously, if you're not on the Isle of Wight, but you're somehow being picked up and registered by the system, um, you know, that could skew everything.
0: And also, Bluetooth, it worked on Bluetooth on mobile phones, yeah. that goes through walls. The virus doesn't go through walls, so there could be someone in another room, even in another building, right. that I'm picked up as a, a live contact, someone that has been infected or gets infected, I'll get the signal to go and get a test or go into isolation, right. but I've not been anywhere near them. There's no well, chance no, yeah. of virus... Also, it might saying.
2: be worse than that, um, Carol, because it might be that they say to you, don't worry about getting a test, you have to isolate anyway. So people will be told... <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean I, I, maybe it just because of the way my mind works. I thought to myself, you know, um, if I was in a situation where um, I wanted to put somebody in quarantine for two weeks, I could just sort of go and hang out next to them. Um, And then the next time I tested myself to find out that I might have had a problem, you know, suddenly they'd all be told to take two weeks off.
0: I know. You know, it has all the hallmarks, Mike, of committee management. And it our, does. a group of experts, 20, 30 people, sit in a room. We can't leave. OK, it's on Zoom or something. We can't shut off till we come to an agreement. What should we say? Mm. And that's how it's done. It's how the NHS surrounds how most public sector works. No one's calling the tune. And then Matt has to face the audience and and explain it all. And yeah. he, he looks a little bit as though he's losing the plot on a few
2: things. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, <laughs> like me, though, not think that this is all a bit of a sort of smoke and mirrors game, that basically the government's view on this, and I I, you know, I've said this many times, I think the government's view on this is to try by nudging people, by kind of making out that there are rules, but the rules are kind of there, but not really. Um, They're sort of allowing people to interpret the rules now in a way uh, which allows people, for example, to go to the beaches of of, of Britain this weekend uh, when it was hot. The fact that people are now in parks everywhere, people are cycling around everywhere. You know, for example, I saw that you tweeted earlier, it makes no sense that I can soon meet my family in a car showroom or a garden centre, but sitting apart in the garden is banned. I mean, I'm not aware... They haven't given permission for us to sit in the garden, right? However, lots of people are doing that.
0: Absolutely, and I've done it. I can confess. I hope they don't get arrested. Well, you better not tell Robert Peston.
2: You know, he'll be (laughs) calling for your resignation immediately.
0: (laughs) Exactly, but no, seriously. How are we going to move forward? And we've got to have transparency. We, if, we, if we, especially, we're going to deviate from all other European countries. Yes, yeah. this, this is this is a deviation. And let's explain it to us. Tell, just tell us why and how it's actually going to work. And how will I be? How will my liberties be affected? My aim in all this is to get cancer patients flowing back into the NHS. They're just not coming. Mm. And it's not that they're not because people aren't getting cancer anymore. It's just that we're not picking them up because the NHS has had such a battering with COVID. It handled it really well, as we know, Mm. but uh, we've got to move on. And all this stuff prevents it moving on because it makes people scared. They don't go to the GP, difficult to get appointments in hospitals and so on and so on. I mean, are most GPs
2: open for business yet? Because I'm I'm under the impression that that the the advice about GPs is still not to go there if you can avoid it.
0: Not to go, but to phone up. A lot of GP business can be dealt with on the phone. That's going to be forever. That's going to stay with us forever. GP appointments online, Skype, Zoom, uh, telephone. And, okay, the younger generation love it because they use their apps on their phones to get doctors now. Yeah. Uh, but the older generation struggle a bit with it, but they'll get used to it. I've got used to it. I'm old. I've got used to dealing with Zoom, and it's quite fun. And when you finish with the Zoom, you're where you were. You don't have to travel anywhere. Right. So, and you have no Trumpy receptionist to interrogate you. you come through the door. Also, you
2: know? no, I mean, one of the things I always used to worry about when I would say, I mean, I've been fortunate, I've never been in too many GP surgeries for my own benefit, but with my kids, for example, and you sit there thinking, how many diseases am I currently picking <laughs> up with all these people coming in and out who are sick when I'm fine, you know?
0: I, I try and make diagnoses in the, in the waiting room. <laughs> it, it's one of the only places I can go, and, and similar to a cancer centre waiting room, where I know I'm one of the youngest people in the audience <laughs> out there. Yes, <laughs> so quite. I feel
2: instantly better. Yes, <laughs> but I think it's important to note this, this, this kind of scenario, because it seems to me the world is separated up into two different kinds of people, the ones who want to be told what to do and the ones who are perfectly capable of looking at a set of guidelines and acting accordingly and not being stupid. In other words, staying alert.
0: Absolutely. And there is a culture of fear. And that was deliberate, uh, a, a deliberate policy by the behavioural in, in, in unit at uh, Number 10 Downing Street to make sure people did stay locked yeah. down. Now, that's over. The NHS coped admirably. Yes. That's over. We don't need to protect the NHS. We need to get moving with the NHS. Right. And uh, But I think alert.
2: even the government have kind of admitted that they didn't expect people to do it so readily as they did.
0: No, I think it was a shock. It's a very powerful psychological message. I'm no expert on psychiatry, but this is brainwashing. It's it's government brainwashing deliberately. And it worked. And we've got to move on now. And the brainwashing's be get back to normal as quickly as possible. And obviously, monitoring for safety for the numbers of new cases, testing. My wife's in a car park in a local hospital as we speak, testing people by shoving sticks up their noses. Mm. And... uh, uh, you know, that's what we've got to be doing. We're doing it too late. We should have been doing it six weeks ago. Yeah. And, I uh, mean, does
2: that mean we shouldn't be doing it now, though? Because presumably it's still benefit- benefiting us. No. we we have to do it now because what we need to look for, and the
0: curve has gone right down across Europe, it's right down the bottom now. New cases are a fraction of what they were in the past and we're testing more and more. Obviously the more you test, the more cases you find. So we're going the right way. But if there is going to be any resurgence somewhere, we need to pick it up immediately. Mm. And probably local lockdowns won't work because of the way people move and commute around the place. What are you going to do about trains? Are you going to shut them all down coming from a particular area and it's all that sort of thing i just don't see this as being thought through by the committee
2: no i mean i suppose the difficulty is that again because they're dealing with um a a sort of recalcitrant nation if you like people who um don't necessarily want to go back to the way things were because they're not feeling safe safe enough like those who don't want to go back to school they're trying to kind of get everyone out there um who is willing to go out and about um to kind of pull everybody else through it i think
0: that's exactly right. And the schools, it's so emotional. I mean, yeah. I've got grandchildren. They want to go back to nursery school on Monday. It looks yeah. good at the moment. It's now... Uh, where are we Wednesday? I think they'll make it. Uh, but, you know, the, the culture of fear in some of the parents and, and the teachers, uh, it, it's difficult to, you can't get round it. Mm. I, I remember getting involved in a public inquiry into radio masks from a military base in East Anglia yeah. a long time ago. And could I persuade the teachers that it was not from that? They were mm. quite safe and, and that three kids with leukemia had got nothing to do with the masks. Yeah. I couldn't persuade them. They mm. said, no, we're teachers. We've been here a long time. We've never had. Three three kids with leukaemia in the class right so maybe they were right who knows
2: well so i mean that's hard that's hard the hard trouble hard. isn't it i mean um what about um uh, your here's another tweet that you put out earlier today that you're saying that you think um that you might be back uh, to sort of a relative normality perhaps in august
0: there's there's a lot of symbolism in this. If we could get pub gardens open, I think it would make a lot of difference.
2: I'm, I'm very much in favor of pub gardens opening. It,
0: I mean. it, it, it's symbolism. It's just okay, get the National Trust open, let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's not get people in confined spaces and let's make sure people can socially distance and you know have different rules about collecting drinks from the bar and all that. You know, it's, it's all doable. You don't need to, it's not rocket size to do it and the pubs would welcome it. Let's just get moving. Well, and that's then, it.
2: I mean there's lots of pubs around London now, and I've seen uh, on my travels, which, which are doing a sort of booming takeaway business. People are queuing exactly. up at a window, getting a glass of beer in a, in a, in a plastic glass, and then just wandering about with it
0: absolutely. There's one near me on the Thames, right. and uh, I think it's time to go there. <laughs> but no, I seriously, <laughs> I think it's really important we, we get moving for everybody's psyche cause, uh, as well as financially. Uh, and the whole hospital, the hotels are actually the upmarket hotels are now beginning to open up. I've stayed about three nights in a hotel in the last few weeks as a, uh, a key worker, and right. therefore I book in as such. Uh, and they're not pleasant places, because they are like Fort Knox in these hotels. Eh? Right. And your breakfast arrives. In a brown bag, and a knock on the door, the breakfast there, you pick it up, you yeah. don't see the person delivering, it and that's it. I mean, they've done their best, yeah. Uh, but I think time now has come to, to get moving on the hotel front,
2: and also, as we've all been saying now for about two to three weeks, you know, it's time to learn to live with this thing rather than to expect it to be all over and done with, and that there should be a vaccine and all the rest of it. You know, the bottom line is, is that you know we need to get back to as normal a normality as we possibly can um and you know i think we're well on the way to doing that
0: yeah and the vaccine is not guaranteed lots of positive noises. The drugs are not guaranteed. I mean, Matt Hancock yesterday was singing the praises from Desivir, which is an antiviral drug. But, you know, when you look at the clinical data, there's no benefit in survival in the randomised trial. There was a prolongation uh, in the normal patients of just four days. Mm. They didn't receive it in the control arm. That's not a big difference. It's not life and death stuff, except for a handful. Now, sure, it's worth it if that's the case, even if you save a few patients, but it's not a game changer, a changer in this business.
2: No, I don't think so. So, I mean, if you were Matt Hancock now, what would you do next, in other words? I'd fire the committee completely. <laughs> <laughs> and any
0: epidemiologist, I'll just say thank you very much.
2: Please Are you talking go. about the sage crowd? <laughs>
0: yes. I think think there's got to be one leader in this, and Mm. they should just do it. It could be Boris, it could be Matt, and they just do it. I mean, I always think when you read the history and Italy and Mussolini and how he made the trains run on time and all that sort of thing, I'm not wishing Mussolini to be prime minister. You need someone with a proper vision of how this is going to end. And, you know, sure, there could be a second wave, it could be a disaster for the NHS with winter pressures coming, but that's the worst case scenario. You have to prepare for it. But let's move as though it's not going to
2: happen. We can get out of it. Well, exactly right. And that's the other thing, that, you know, the science that has guided the government through this, and I've said this now quite a lot over the past couple of weeks, has changed so dramatically from what it was in January to February to March to April. You know, every month the scientific advice has been different. And so you know, maybe it's time to take stock and be a leader of a political organisation rather than try to take the advice of scientists, who it seems to me can't seem to agree uh, on you know, how to fry an egg.
0: <laughs> this is very difficult because it's not hard science. Even the the, the the social distancing, is it two metres as we're inspired? Is it 1.5 metres as in Germany? Or is it one metre as the WHO still recommends right from the beginning? Yes. It makes a huge difference to workplaces and pubs and restaurants because doing two metres is much more challenging in an enclosed space than, than one metre. So yes. Uh, these are the sorts of issues There's, the science is very soft and uh, if you get a committee half will go one way another half will go the other way and you get nowhere so
2: exactly yeah. well listen all, all we can do a uh, professor is is keep the faith and uh, and do the best thing that we think we could do uh, keeping in mind of course what the regulations say and the guidelines and all of that uh, and we shall speak soon professor carol Secura, there uh, who is of course dean of medicine at the university of buckingham <laughs> Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is just after 12.30. It is that time uh, when we do our little homeschooling section. So if you haven't done it yet, uh, get your children crowded around the radio. Uh, get them crowded around the TV if you're watching us live on YouTube uh, or Facebook or Twitter. Indeed, get them crowded around the, uh, the smart speaker, whatever it is that you might be listening through if they're in the car. Because Because I have a very special treat for you, Mr Neil Oliver, uh, who is that Coast guy, uh, as he calls himself. uh, The man who uh, produces and puts out this fantastic uh, um, show called Coast, all about the coastline of Great Britain. Uh, He's going to be talking to us right now. uh, And if you're watching on uh, YouTube, you can see him. Neil, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Hello. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I love Coast. I mean, it's one of those shows that that when you look at it, you kind of go, what's this about? but it's fascinating because it's not really about anything. It's just about what you're looking at and you give it great kind of um, context. And you talk about the history of Britain at the same time as the archaeology of Britain. It's it's just wonderful. I'm, I'm sorry to hose you down with so much pleasure. I don't normally do this, but, but I'm delighted to see you on here.
3: I think it's the, the it's simply the fact that we, we love the landscape and I think, but I think sometimes we forget that get, that because it's such a it sounds like such a simple thing to say mm. uh, and I think Coast as a series it managed to remind people uh, about places that were sometimes very close at hand you know sometimes for people it was someone that was just 20 miles up the road or a, or a short bus journey or a car ride or whatever uh, and they would be they would be Forced to reconnect and think, yes, I remember that. I remember going there when I was a child. I remember these places that mattered to me. Yes. Um, and we are, we are, we are, we are a product of this place. You know, we are made of it. It's in our teeth, it's in our bones. Uh, you know, we assimilate this place and uh, and we love it. Yes, and I think Coast just reminded people that it was a place worth celebrating in so many ways.
2: Yeah, because I think you're absolutely right. Because one of the things that I've got a memory of, and I don't even know what the what the ship what the ship was that I was on, but it was somewhere in in Scotland. It might have been going to Iona or something. And I remember going past Fingal's Cave, and I just remember the name scared me. I just thought I don't know what Fingal is. I don't know who he is, but it must be a scary giant or something. Um, and I've never forgotten that. And when I think you did a show going up that coastline. Um, and it was and it really brought it all back to me because it's so beautiful as well
3: yes it's a, that's an astonishing like fingal's cave it's it's a product of the same sort of geological processes that make the giant causeway mm. uh you know it's those uh, basalt uh columns uh and it it, it means it, it means that when you go there even as a modern 21st century person it has the look of something that has that is architectural yes you know, you would swear that rather than it being something that was made by natural processes, that, that somebody had decided to create it and had built it. Mm. Uh, and we still feel that. We feel that as modern, sophisticated modern people. So you can imagine the effect that its presence and existence would have had on people in earlier times, earlier okay. times, earlier centuries, sailing past it mm. and only wondering, you know, what it was, what forces, what individual perhaps uh, had had sought to it that that, that place was created. And the landscape around us is, is littered with those. I mentioned Giant's Causeway again, you know, a, a place it, it seemed to people who, who encountered it in the past that it, it couldn't be natural, that mm. it, must have been, uh, it must have been built. You go all over the place uh, and you, you're, you encounter uh, places in the landscape that, that, people in ancient, that people in ancient times thought were, were the work of giants or that they had summoned into, been summoned into being by, by ancient forces. And suddenly you're, you're, you're made to realize that we have things in common uh, with the thinking of, say, the, the indigenous people of Australia. Mm. You know, We know about the, the, the dream time uh, and how those, those people continue to have a belief that before time there were these ancestral beings that shaped the world, that got it ready for the humans, ready. For the humans to, to, to move among. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, when you encounter places like Fingal's Cave, Giant's Cosby, you realise that well, we are just the same. We we had those same explanations for the landscape ourselves. Mm. We're not we're not we're not so different from the other peoples of the world who understand their place in the cosmos in different ways. We're, yes. we're connected to. Them. And we're united by the same emotions.
2: And, and for such a small island, you know, in terms of the, re- the rest of the world, it's remarkably different, isn't it, the coastline? I mean, the other part of, of, of our coastline that I absolutely love is Tintagel down in uh, Cornwall, you know, where, where we all think that Merlin oh, yeah. came from. I mean, it's a, it's a magical place. And, and But so much of the coastline Again, looks well, different.
3: Well, we know, we know that people were coming to Cornwall for tin, thousands of years ago, mm. the Phoenician people were coming and mooring their ships at St. Michael's Mount, three and a half thousand, three and a half thousand years ago to get tin. Uh, and uh, tin at that time was, was uh, foundational to the world. If you want to make bronze, everyone's heard of the Bronze Age. Well, if you want to make bronze, you need to bring tin together with copper. There's no other way to do it. And tin has always been rare. It's rare on the surface of the earth now, it, 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 and it always was. And for the ancient world that depended upon bronze tools and bronze weapons, the best source of tin, source of tin for the bronze was Cornwall. Mm. So we were on the map, our little archipelago was on the map in ancient times. And if you think about the idea of the, of the sword and the stone that's, that's so part of the Arthurian legend that's associated with Tintagel Castle, imagine being um, someone who had never seen metal made before. Imagine someone coming into your community and building a fire Uh, Turning powdery rock into a liquid, into a liquid that had a a brightness about it like looking into the sun, and then would pour that into a mould, a clay mould, and seconds later would produce from that mould a sword. Mm. Imagine if you don't have the technical sophistication to understand what has just happened in front of your eyes, you're never going to forget the man who pulled a sword out of a stone. Yes. You're going to tell your children about it, and it's going to become part of the myth of the place. Right. And so, that, that, and so that, that helps explain why Arthur is so woven into the fabric of Cornwall, to mm. Tadjil Castle, because it was a place that was important for, for sourcing the material, for making, uh, for, for making swords and other weapons and tools. And you mentioned the, the variety of our coastline. I've, I've travelled around uh, theatres around uh, Britain in the last couple of years, standing on stage every night and declaring that I think this is the best place on planet Earth. And by this place, I mean by this place, I mean the whole of the British Isles, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales together. I think it's the most astonishingly beautiful place. And if, as if that weren't enough, it's also woven throughout with stories that run back for a million years. And you can go from the landscape of Cornwall to the landscape of Wales to the, the landscape of Norfolk to, to the northeast of Scotland to Ireland, and you can see such unbelievable variation. You can hear all the different accents, all the different voices, you can hear all the voices, you can hear all the different explanations for why the landscape looks the way that it does. Yes. And it's all in this relatively tiny little insignificant scrap of dry land off the northwest coast of Europe. And it's there is just so much that's to be valued here and treasured here. Uh, and it's a lifetime's work. You know, I've, I've had the opportunity to travel, you know, to, to many places around the world, uh, but my heart belongs here. Mm. And you could spend a dozen lifetimes trying, lifetimes. To, trying to understand how we have come to have this place that we do.
2: It really is true, and one of the other parts of, of Britain that I spend a lot of time in is the south coast down by Beachy Head. You know, Norman's Bay is a place which 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 I love. There's a there's an there's a Norman galleon um, sort of buried beneath, uh, just under the surface of the uh, of the beach there, which you can see at low tide. You know, it's quite remarkable that if you were just to walk around the beaches of this country, what you would see.
3: One of my most uh, really, I, I often say that my most favourite artefact, the best thing I've ever seen from the past, uh, is the Dover boat, mm. uh, which is a, a Bronze Age boat that was found at Dover uh, 15 years ago. It's on display in Dover Museum now. And it's it's made of oak planks. In its original form, it would have been about 60 feet long. Four great planks of oak, planks of oak, that were stitched together uh-huh. uh, with uh, flexible withies of willow. It would have been a craft that could sail back and forth across the channel, back and forth to the European mainland for people involved in trade or moving people around. Uh, it's 2,000 and more years old, uh, and it's, uh, it, it's kept now in a, a specially built uh, glass uh, chamber right. that keeps it in the special conditions that ensure the conditions that ensure its survival into the future. I've had the opportunity to crouch down beside that, that Dover boat, and I swear you know, I'm not given to these sort of thoughts, but I swear that thing had a personality. Wow. You know that I felt vaguely that I was in the presence of the people who had made it. Mm. You know that had made it. T- you know, t- two thousand and more years ago, and you can see the fact that they they, they took it and they scuttled it. Uh, the Dover boat was was deliberately sunk by the people who had owned it and right. had used it. They came to a point in their in their point in their in their in their story of themselves where they thought they should give this thing back to the world, that they'd had it for long enough, and that they had they had accrued a debt that had to be settled. And so they rowed it up a river and they cut the withies and they watched it fall apart and then they watched it sink. And there it lay for 2,000 and more years, you know, while all most of the history that we care about was unfolding, while mm. that, that Dover boat was waiting, and you can go there and see it. And as you say, that the, there are hundreds and hundreds of unexplored, of unexplored shipwrecks lying off the coast of Britain. Yes. Know, we, we, a lot of their locations are plotted. Uh, there are, there are un, uh, You could spend a lifetime just on one fifty-mile stretch of the of the British coastline. You know, we measured it for coast. Roughly speaking, it's about twelve thousand miles. It depends it? how you measure these things. Right. How you measure a coastline. But uh, you, fifty miles would take you a lifetime to properly map and properly understand, yeah. properly understand. And and people think there's nothing here worth going to see. It, it's, a, <laughs> it's a it's a, it's multiple lifetime worth of wonderful places to see and to and to try and to understand
2: yeah it's fabulous i mean we could talk about this all day as well but you've got a you've got a podcast coming out or it is out already uh your love letter to the british isles tell us about that
3: yes neil oliver's love letter to, to the british isles it is, it's a product of the work i've been doing over the last couple of years you know I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago with the same years ago with the same sort of theme people had asked me over and over again you know you've been everywhere in britain where where should we go and it's a difficult question to answer and you know, in a five-minute conversation in yeah. the street. Uh, so that This is a, this is my attempt to answer that question properly uh, and to say these are the, the hundred places or, or whatever. I think if you put them in chronological order, they tell us something about this place and they tell us something about who we are. And perhaps most interestingly of all, yeah. most interestingly of all, they tell us how we have come to be the people that we are. Uh, the story starts a million years ago, more or less, with footprints in mud at Haysborough in Norfolk. And then I, I, I come up through all of, the, all of the periods, the Stone Age, the Metal Ages, Bronze and Iron, the coming of Romans, the coming of Anglo-Saxons, Normans, Vikings and all the rest. Uh, I come right up to the present day. But there are places in the landscape that I think if you go to them, you can feel physically connected, physically connected to the past. The part of that's my, I suppose, childish mm. imagination. But I think there are certain locations that, that resonate with the past or they have the power of an old magnet. You know, when you when you put something against it, you can feel its power to draw. Yeah. And there are places in the landscape that are like that. And this is a this is my uh, my my working my way steadily through these places and trying to explain why they matter to me yes. and why I think they should matter to everyone.
2: Yes, it sounds fantastic. I used to know someone who who talks about places being a corner of the world. You know, and certain places where you just you stand there and you just think, yeah, this is like a corner of the world.
3: There are there are places in the landscape as well where you can feel the age of the world, which sounds like a strange thing to say, you know, because obviously the whole place is the, is the same age, you know, in, in a certain fundamental mm. sense. But you know, if you go to somewhere like um, uh, Yellow Top, which is is a headland, uh, a Paviland in South Wales, and it's the place, and it's the location of the discovery of a, of ancient human remains that, that that tell part of a story about what life was like here 35,000 years ago. But just putting yourself in that part of the landscape. You, there's something about uh, the way in which that landscape suggests a face that's been scraped of all makeup. Mm. It, it's a face that's been taken back to just just the just the bones and the skin, and yet it's it remains beautiful for all that. But it's that, but it's unadulterated. And it, it, it's a, one of those. There are many places in the landscape where you sense the great age. You know, you you you, you feel as if you're pr- you're put properly in your place as a here today, gone tomorrow. Mm organism yeah. you know that we, we won't, we're passing we're just passing through and there are places that i think it's great for the soul or it's great for the spirit to go and be in the presence of these places that remind us that this is this this island of ours this island of ours is just rented accommodation you know we're just the recent the most recent tenants of the place and in a blinking of an eye we'll be gone And underneath the floorboards, as it were, are all the keepsakes and and things left behind by the uncountable numbers of people that went before us. And you can go out there and see that. There are places you can stand, things you can touch, documents and artefacts you can look at in museums, museums. And you are reminded over and over again about how much has happened here. It's a story, our story of the British Isles is a million years in the telling. Some of it's not even by our own species. You know, our species is only 200,000 years old Mm. uh, and there are footprints in the mud at Haysborough that are a million years old, which means they were made by another version of humankind, Homo antecessor, that walked the earth two million years ago and finally became extinct about 800,000 years ago. They were here two years ago. They were here too. You know, so our our story of the British Isles is also articulated, told uh, uh, and passed on to us by other species of humankind. It's not even just about us. It's
2: fantastic, isn't it? It's been a real pleasure, Neil, talking to you. Thank you so much for for sharing all that. Uh, It's opened up, I'm sure, an entire... Gateway for people uh, who have just listened to you uh, to go and check out your podcast, which is Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles. And Coast, if you haven't seen it, you've got to watch that as well. Fabulous stuff. Neil Oliver, thank you very much indeed. That was your homeschooling. Uh, I learned an awful lot. I imagine you did too. Talk radio across the UK, online,
0: on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.